It all started with that portable tape recorder I had as a kid. Uh oh. Then I started pause button editing between two VCRs. I'll be alive. Oh my god, the figure's dead. The crazy thing is then I got into radio. Mr. Announcer! The yum. Oh my god, thank you very much. After that I went into TV. My whole life, the tape has been rolling, which is fine by me because I always think there's a story to be told, but a word of warning from everyone around me. Do not give this tape to Earl. Welcome back, all and sundry, to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. I'm Earl Green. But I suspect you probably knew that, or at least you would be very surprised if this podcast landed in your podcatcher, and it wasn't me talking to you. Although it'd be kind of funny if it was like my cats, you know, if they all just decided to get together and do a podcast, put it on the feed. That would be a that would be an interesting development, probably signaling yet again another sign of the end of human civilization, primate domination of the planet as we know it. But in all likelihood, it's not going to happen. Hopefully everyone is doing okay, everyone within the sound of my voice here. Um, no, no, really, no, let me broaden that out. Hopefully everyone is okay. It's, uh, we are so short on empathy, it's not like I want to say, you know, you know, everyone who's listening to this, everyone who's not listening to this, to heck with you. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, I hope everyone is okay. I hope everyone gets through this year unscathed. And yet I realize that's also another unlikely thing that could possibly happen. I was actually having a conversation online with a friend of mine the other night, uh, you know, an online chat, where I expressed my annoyance with myself at not being more productive during this time. You know, that it seemed like, yeah, there was a time earlier this year where I had all the time in the world, and I'll be honest, and I'm sure I'm not alone here, uh, I curled up and slept in a little ball covered with cats a lot during that time because I wasn't sure what else to do. And in some ways, that is actually what this show is about. It's, you know, sort of about what 2020 has been for me and you know we're past the midpoint of 2020 thank goodness that's right puck is absolutely correct big black cat and i've been having a hard time with it i suspect a lot of you have as well but i have been trying to compile notes for an edition of don't give this tape to earl for probably upward of three months now. And at various points, um, you know, I had someone in mind that I wanted to get on the show as a guest because uh, it really takes more than just me to talk about, uh, say, fitty givers. But schedules haven't quite worked out yet, and then I wound up picking up... um, some work to make up for the fact that my work schedule with Roddenberry.com has dropped off quite a bit. Yeah, and and I know you're aware of that, Puck. But the people I'm talking to aren't. And then the work with Roddenberry picked back up, so in a way I'm kind of 
working. I'm, I'm not. I hesitate to claim it's two full-time jobs right now, but I've I've got a workload now, and so yeah, I'm kind of looking back fondly on when I had all the time in the world to do stuff and didn't really do it. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. But first off, let's do what we normally do on Don't Give This Tape to Earl. Let's blast off and talk some science and space stuff. miss if I didn't lead off this section with the triumphant maiden voyage of the SpaceX Crew Dragon. It has now flown with astronauts on board. At the end of May, we saw the first ever launch of a Crew Dragon vehicle with both cargo and crew aboard. The two astronauts who flew to the ISS at the end of May returned successfully and safely at the end of July. Although it's kind of crazy, they arrived, and there are photos and video of this, when they splashed down in late July, when the dragon splashed down uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, which is not a place that a lot of spacecraft recovery has happened. Um, there was this crazy scene. There were lots of boats nearby, and it's... Um, there are so many ways to interpret that without really knowing who exactly was in the boats, but the way the world is right now, yeah, I think maybe they need to uh, they need to secure the area a little bit better before another one of these flies and then splashes down again. The dragon itself performed well, nominal, shall we say, nominal, much better than the Boeing Starliner test flight in 2019, which was, shall we say. And let's coin this phrase right now, not nominal. In fact, the less said about the Boeing Starliner, the better. Um, obviously, the Crew Dragon pipped everybody to the post. It is the first privately flown spacecraft to reach orbit with a crew on board and the first privately owned spacecraft to reach the ISS with a crew on board. So congratulations to SpaceX, and congratulations to them also. They finally managed to launch the uh, test article of what they call the SpaceX Starship. As some people say it looks like a flying water tower, I thought it looked more like a giant flying thermos. But basically, this is the big stainless steel, you know, the big metal-looking thing, and they actually got it to take a 150-meter hop, which means it got itself airborne, moved laterally for about that distance, and then landed safely. Now, this was quite a feat. Uh, there have been so many launches scrubbed, so many test launches scrubbed for the Starship. And then a month or two back, there was a static test firing that ended with the whole vehicle exploding. So, uh, and, and that's where I <laughs> that's where I got the phrase not nominal, because the play-by-play uh, the -play announcer on SpaceX's feed you know, on their live stream, 
for that static test firing a couple of months ago. You know, the thing blows up, and he says, that was not nominal. Like, dude, why would you have a spacecraft launch that was not nominal? It was totally not nominal. Anyway, the 150-meter hop test launch was much more nominal than its predecessor, thank goodness. I still think some elements of the SpaceX Starship are kind of cuckoo crazy pants, but, you know, I suppose we all thought that about the Dragon 2 at some point. In other space news, there is an invasion of Mars taking place, being carried out entirely by robots from Earth. That's right, Puck. There is a favorable launch window uh, this summer as far as reaching Mars in a fairly timely manner, about uh, seven or eight month travel time. And taking advantage of that window were no less than three different robotic space vehicles. The Mars 2020 mission, also known as Perseverance, launched by NASA. China launched the Tianwen-1 mission. And the United Arab Emirates launched their first planetary mission, the Emirates-Mars mission, also known as HOPE. The HOPE mission is going to be strictly orbital, and it's going to be trying to uh, monitor Martian weather and climate from orbit. Uh, Perseverance, obviously, is a rover, so it will be landing. Tianwen-1 also has a landing component to it. So best of luck to all involved. And By the way, the Cloak of Geekitude has some room in its... Uh, in the area of Mars missions, you know, if anyone could get hold of the mission pins for Tianwen-1 or HOPE, I would love to rep some more international missions on that great big brown jacket full of robotic mission pins. So, let me know. All of these should be arriving in or around February of 2021. And Japan has a little surprise for us. The Hayabusa 2 spacecraft will be redirected after it drops off its samples from the asteroid 162173 Ryugu to touch down on Earth in December of this year. Uh, the landing capsule that Hayabusa 2 drops off should come down in Australia in December. But here's the thing. The mission controllers steering Hayabusa 2 for its journey to and around Ryugu did such a good job that it still has something like 60 pounds of propellant on board. So they are looking at various mission extensions. They are looking at possibly another asteroid, maybe a flyby of Venus, maybe both if they can really work the numbers and continue to do this very good management of their remaining onboard propellant. Now, I'm a big fan of throwing as many robots at Venus as we possibly can, so I am 100% behind this plan. Mad props to JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, for you know, good driving and fuel management, basically.
Now let's talk for a while about stuff I've been watching because, let's face it, we have all had lots of time to watch stuff anymore. I originally, in my notes, I had this section uh, subtitled TV and Streaming, but um, let's face it, broadcast TV is dying a death. I, I am glad that my livelihood no longer depends on broadcast TV because I would be very, very worried. Now, as I record this, one episode of the animated comedy series Star Trek Lower Decks has dropped. So far, I really like it. It's funny, and it's Star Trek. Now, in a lot of ways, I'm hoping that Lower Decks follows the rule of pilot episodes of all of the Star Trek series that have come before it, which is that the series is always an improvement on the pilot. It, it's much better than the pilot would lead you to believe. Um, we'll, we'll call that the far point rule. <laughs> because we should all get on our knees to what the far point rule is and what it represents. Um, and if you needed an explanation of what the far point rule was, I just gave it to you. Now I'm hoping the show continues to get better, explores its characters, and continues to be funny, but I'm also hoping that it shows its great big Star Trek heart on its sleeve rather than just being, you know, a half hour of snark every week. The opening titles are a beautiful thing, even if they are kind of, you know, they're kind of taking the mickey out of the Voyager opening titles. Uh, to quote someone from Star Trek II, I don't think these kids can steer. Now the music also caught my ear. I am totally ready for a Lower Decks soundtrack album at the end of the season. There was one point in the first episode when we're seeing everyone running through the corridors of the ship trying to get away from the zombie-like infected crew members and they're trying to uh, they're trying to get Boimler who's covered with slime that could cure this whole outbreak they're trying to get him to sickbay safely uh, the music for that scene brought me up short I could have sworn they brought Dennis McCarthy out of retirement it was uh, it was very true to the sound of the next generation I loved it so yeah I'm I'm all in on lower decks I, I'm ready for the little Eagle Moss ship I'm ready for the action figures I'm ready for the soundtrack now, CBS All Access has been running a promo, or or at least they were running a promo up until the premiere of Lower Decks, reminding us that after the last week of Lower Decks, which will run for ten weeks, Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery begins the very next week, resulting in, as their promo says, 23 weeks of Star Trek. But don't forget, and I know it's easy to forget that the first season of Picard was at the beginning of this year, and not two years ago or something, which is what it feels like, uh, we had 10 weeks of Star Trek already this year, so that adds up to 33 weeks. So, since Discovery starts in mid-October, uh, its season finale will technically be in the first week of 2021. So, for 2020, that's 32 weeks of Star Trek, but that is a lot more Star Trek than we have had in one year in a very, very long time. And here's the thing, I think we really need Star Trek right now. We need that message that the future is going to be all right, and it's going to be better than the present, even if the story that we're getting is the story of the struggle to make that future all right. I know that the original Star Trek and many of the spin-offs kind of present us with a future that's already better. You know, whatever changes have taken place that made the world a safer place for all, they've already happened, and the show isn't going to spend a lot of time telling us what steps were taken on that road. But... In this particular year, I think maybe we do need to hear the story 
of how we get from here to there. I'm not suggesting taking on Star Trek's utopian fictional future as a political model or any kind of belief system, but it would be nice to start laying out some kind of a roadmap. How could we make things better? How can we reach for that future? Now, speaking of Picard, I haven't really talked about that yet. Um, I, in fact, I don't think I've talked about it since the last time I did one of these shows. Uh, Picard was excellent, although it seemed a little bit rushed. And But here's the thing. I can't tell if it needed to be 13 episodes or if it only needed to be 7 or 8. Because there was a lot of time spent with stuff that didn't improve the show. And I'm looking at you, Romulan Wonder Twins, the uh, the two characters who Twitter nicknamed the Romulanisters, because there were all sorts of incestuous hints that were dropped about them in the story. Yeah, the time spent with those characters did not improve the show. Narek could have just been taking orders from a generic superior, and it would not have hurt anything. Overall, though, I was really happy with Picard. It made good use of some surprisingly deep-dive characters and past plot points. I never expected to tune into a new Star Trek series in 2020, only to hear Bruce Maddox or Icheb name-checked, much less shown. I didn't expect to be catching up with Seven of Nine, Will Riker, or Deanna Troy, or to follow up on the fate of Romulus after the supernova that was mentioned in passing in the 2009 Star Trek movie that kind of kicked off J.J. Abrams' uh, Kelvin universe. So the whole show really felt like it was a gift to the longtime fans, and I loved all of the new characters. I'm ready for more of them. Um, so kind of a qualified thumbs up on Star Trek Picard, and I think, I, I would like to think that the writers going into season two will be fully aware of what the weaknesses were and what the strengths were, and how to play to the strengths and mitigate the weaknesses. Now, that being said, I don't know when they're going to be able to film a second season. It was neat to see Seven of Nine brought into this context, but I would really love for them to do some follow-up on Deep Space Nine in the future as well, at least while some of the cast is still with us. Obviously, we've run out of time to catch up with Nog or Odo, but we could still see what Garrick is up to, Bashir, Ezri Dax, O'Brien, Jake Sisko, Quark. I mean, Quark at least got a name check in Season 1 of Picard, a visual name check. His name was on the, uh, the bar in Stardust City Rag. There's a whole universe out there. I say if the story calls for it, you know, let's let's use the characters from Deep Space Nine. Let's let's do a little bit of catching up with everybody. Let's not let DS9 continue to be the red-headed stepchild of the franchise, please. Now, another show that I enjoyed two years ago at the beginning of 2020 was Armando Iannucci's brilliant little sci-fi sitcom Avenue 5 on HBO, starring Hugh Laurie of House fame. Now, I've been a big fan of Iannucci ever since The Thick of It, which was the show that really made a star out of Peter Capaldi. And, of course, I've been a fan of Hugh Laurie's ever since... I think the first thing I ever saw him in may have been Black Adder. Though, of course, most Americans probably know him from House. Avenue 5 really does follow in the footsteps of The Thick of It because it's got this really caustic, sharp-edged humor. But the show makes great use of Hugh Laurie, allowing him to use both his native British accent and the American accent that he perfected as House. 
and it justifies in the story how his character uses both. I'm a fan of Josh Gad and the rest of the cast as well. And hey, speaking of Star Trek, Ethan Phillips was in this quite a bit, and he was fairly funny. It's just a neat, foul-mouthed, fall-down funny show. You need to watch the whole thing in order, though. All nine episodes, but it's really the eighth episode where it puts its cards on the table. Avenue 5 is a show about a space cruise liner that gets knocked off course in the first episode, so instead of a three-week cruise back to Earth, it's now looking like months. No, make that years before they get back. And here's the thing, the ship is not provisioned for that kind of trip. So from the first episode, Avenue 5 is about trying to brainstorm solutions for that problem, dealing with the problems that come about because the ship is perhaps not maintained all that well, and everyone just trying to cope with the stress of all of the above. But it's in episode 8 where one of the passengers, who says she works in the visual effects industry, starts floating the notion that the ship never actually left Earth. We're all still on Earth. The stars and the other stuff outside, that's just special effects. We could walk out the airlocks at any time and just stroll into a green room instead of dying in the vacuum of space because this whole thing's probably a reality show. And she convinces other people that this is the truth, and before you know it, there are people crowding around the airlocks demanding to walk off the ship. Now, it's really amazing that this show had to have been written and filmed in 2019, because holy hell, if that doesn't speak directly to where we are right now in 2020, especially in the United States. It speaks directly to this insane debate going on, and it, it shouldn't even be a debate. How and why is this a debate? It speaks to this crazy debate going on in the public sphere about science versus half-baked conspiracy theories, specifically where wearing a mask is concerned. We've got people crowding around the airlocks, metaphorically speaking, right now. Worse yet, there are people who want to push my kids out the airlocks. You know, what's the worst that could happen? Someone on YouTube said there's no risk in reopening the schools. <sighs> In Avenue 5, this is the build-up to the biggest belly laugh I've gotten out of anything on TV this year. But bringing it back to the real world, it's just depressing. Even if you've already watched Avenue 5 on HBO or HBO streaming service, you need to re-watch it because the world has gotten even sillier since that episode first aired. If you haven't watched it yet, I strongly recommend it. Avenue 5 has been renewed for a second season, but of course... We're going to have to stop crowding around the damn airlocks if any of these shows are going to have a chance in hell of filming any new episodes anytime in the near future. Now, previously I talked about the Apple TV Plus series For All Mankind, and uh, that show completed its first season since we were last here. Uh, that show has also been renewed for a second year, which was partway through filming when production shut down and everything shut down in the spring. But I'm still kind of on the fence about For All Mankind. I am intrigued by an alternate history telling of the space program in which the Apollo program doesn't end with Apollo 17. But some of the socio-political elements of the story just still don't strike me as realistic. And I know I talked about this some before, back when I'd seen the first half of the season. But I am still not buying into the writer's premise that if the Russians had made it to the moon first, and if America had suffered just a little bit more hardship on the road to the moon, 
the result would have been civil rights and women's rights and gay rights advancing faster than they did in actual history. I don't buy into that premise because America under duress is not where you find the best America. In many cases, it's where you find the worst version of America, he said, waving his arms vaguely at everything happening in the year 2020. The idea that NASA or any part of the U.S. government finding itself under the gun and in desperate need of brighter ideas and better minds would throw open the doors to a more diverse range of people? Mm, I don't see that happening in the early 70s. I mean, sure, you have times like when Chesley Sullenberger landed the plane on the Hudson River and all the boats within earshot of that event, New Yorkers, gathered around and helped and not one life was lost. You do have moments like that in history, but sometimes... You also have people doubling down on their worst instincts and their worst behaviors and the deepest, darkest recesses of the reptilian remnants of their animalistic brain. And, uh, man, we're talking about 2020 again, aren't we? Hmm. We are not the smartest country on the planet. I just want to put that on the table that I understand and acknowledge that. Now, the trailer released for Season 2 of For All Mankind seems to be leaning hard into the notion of a Cold War that's more amped up than the real thing was in the early 80s. And, I don't know. I'll still tune in, but do you know who they need to bring on board as an advisor for this show? They need David Portry. If you don't know who David is, he used to write a column called Beyond Apollo for one of the major news and feature article websites, and it covered all of the big pie-in-the-sky mission plans that were left on the drawing board by NASA. Real things that people were planning, real missions that maybe were in the budget for a little while, and then vanished. Plans that were grander than Apollo, Soyuz, or Skylab. This show really needs someone like David, who has written detailed history monographs for NASA itself, and has a much better grasp of the ebb and flow of history, not just of the space program, but on outside influences, outside societal and political and economic factors that impacted the space program. A more nuanced view of how history does unfold rather than, oh man, if we change this one thing, how cool would that be? It, it, you need a little bit more thought than that. I'm going to include a link to David's current website in the show notes, and I will also tell you that he is someone whose career trajectory has very much been derailed by the COVID-19 outbreak. So I strongly advise you to check out his work and support it through his own Patreon, because really, I enjoyed reading David's articles a lot more than I've enjoyed For All Mankind. And he's a real person dealing with real fallout from this year and could use your help. So if I can use my little platform here to direct you toward his work and how you can support it, yeah, I'm going to use it for that. I keep wading into this heavy territory talking about TV. So, let's see if we can talk about something a little bit more fun here. Let's talk The Mandalorian. The last time I talked TV on this podcast, I don't think we had reached the end of the first season of The Mandalorian. And let me just say, I know it has been almost a year at this point, but holy cow. The Mandalorian was just a really satisfying season of TV, or streaming TV, whatever you want to call it. If you're not already aware, Disney Plus aired a series in the spring of this year called Disney Gallery The Mandalorian, which explored how the series was made from its conception, and yes, they they did name-check Lone Wolf and Cub, and they totally copped to that influence. 
So they cover everything from conceiving the story to how the thing was actually produced in this amazing studio that's basically a 360-degree tank of ultra-high-def screens running scenery that's being rendered in real time on the Unreal Game Engine. And the scenery shifts in response to positional data coming from the camera that's being used to shoot the actors in front of this wall and ceiling of screens. That stuff is just amazing to me. Now, for the most part, they only build partial sets for The Mandalorian, and the rest is on a screen. But it's not a green screen. Most of it, once it's on tape, the background, it's there. It shows up in camera. However fantastical an environment it was, they don't have to go back and green screen it for the most part. It's, it's all in camera. It's done. I'm sure there's still a respectable amount of finessing and fine-tuning done in post-production, but this process is going to change how movies and TV are made. Now, I know that not everyone is into stuff that sounds like DVD bonus features, and yes, the tone of the Disney Gallery series is very self-congratulatory, but I cannot recommend strongly enough that you check it out and then rewatch The Mandalorian from the beginning to really appreciate how amazing this show was from a production standpoint and how amazing it is that it'll be back for a new season this fall because the second season was already in the can when the outbreak happened. So we're going to have Season 2 of The Mandalorian on schedule because, again, you shoot in that tank full of screens, all of your effects are in camera, it's done. I can't wait. I still have to say, it is the best Western that TV has given us in years, if not decades. It just happens to be a Western with spaceships and lasers. Disney Plus also gave us the last season of The Clone Wars, which was an amazing thing. I mean, where Clone Wars left off previously was fine, but this season really brought all the chickens home to roost plot-wise, and it finally brought the story up to the point where in the last few episodes, what we were seeing were events running concurrently with Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. So we find out where Rex and Ahsoka were during the issuance of Order 66, and what happened at that point. Now keep in mind, we'd already had the foreshadowing of Order 66 throughout the Clone Wars, including clone troopers who discovered that they had been augmented specifically to obey this unknown order that someone clearly expected to give them at some point in the future. The clones who had discovered it in episodes several seasons ago were not okay with the implications of this discovery, but there were other parties who were not okay with them discovering it in the first place and trying to circumvent it. So a lot of stuff from the show's past that had been left dangling was brought in for a smooth landing in this last season. I, I think they really stuck the landing with that one. Now, yes, it did conflict with at least one of the novels, and it slightly retconned how some of these same characters said things went down when they reappeared in much older form in Star Wars Rebels. But, let's face it, it's not the Clone Wars if there aren't at least two alternate tellings of every single event. That has been a thing going back to the earliest attempts to make a multimedia event out of the Clone Wars. It's almost a Star Wars tradition at this point. There are two or three wildly different stories around the same vaguely referenced events numerous times. I mean, that's a tradition going back to Ord Mantell, and, you know, I don't care what the comics say about Ord Mantell. I think the Buena Vista story LP told us what really happened. Really, the last season of The Clone Wars was an unexpected victory lap. Back when they showed a really vague trailer at the 2019 Star Wars celebration, I didn't know what to expect. I, hadn't they already had a series finale at least twice before? 
I'm glad that they got to tie the bow on the story and bring it to the conclusion that meets up with where the prequel trilogy ended. And, you know, we finally got this satisfying conclusion to the whole story. So yeah, I also watched the Space Force series on Netflix. That was kind of light-hearted, light-headed fun from uh, Steve Carell of The Office fame. But at times, I couldn't really figure it out. Is it trying to be check-your-brain-at-the-door comedy, or is it trying to be heartfelt, or is it trying to say something? Is it trying to make a point about the times we live in, or about the political background that created the Space Force as a real branch of the U.S. military. Sometimes the answers to those questions seem to shift from episode to episode, and yet there's stuff like the Kokomo scene in the very first episode. There are scenes that are just fall-down funny. Now, I haven't discounted completely any show that I've watched in 2020, because in addition to the questions I always ask about my entertainment, such as what is the show trying to say and how well is the show saying it, there's another question that we have to ask this year. At the time I watched this, was I in the right headspace to really get it? And that's a question I think a lot of people should ask, because we've been trying to just carry on and absorb entertainment at a time when our reality has fundamentally shifted in a way that many of us are having a hard time processing. If there was a show you just hated this year, even though everyone else seemed to love it, keep that last question in mind and maybe come back to that show and revisit it later. So, I've also watched a few movies. Let's talk about those. Rise of Skywalker. Well, that was a movie. I've made no secret of the fact that I was a huge fan of The Last Jedi. I know there were some weird pacing and other issues like the slow speed chase across the galaxy and the rebel equivalent of the white bronco but overall i loved the tone and the characterization of the last jedi and i loved how much it subverted expectations wherever it could the last jedi for me was probably the best star wars movie since the empire strikes back it had a lot of layers to it and it stands up to serious analysis the Rise of Skywalker tries so hard to hit the undo button on so much of what The Last Jedi did that it was almost guaranteed to piss me off. There are so many problems with Rise of Skywalker. First off, they should have gone Deathly Hallows on this movie. This should have been split up into two films so they could let the plot and the audience and the characters breathe a little bit. There's too much packed in there, and there are some leaps of plot logic and, you know, things that are mentioned as having happened off-screen that just seem kind of arbitrary. I don't mind finding out that Rey is a descendant of the Emperor, and if anything, the fact that the Emperor had a child, by natural means, who decided to flee from him later, there's a whole story waiting to be told there, maybe a comic or a novel or something. And Lando and his daughter, who the movie neglects to tell us is his daughter, we only know that through ancillary media. So the movie instead leaves us with this weird impression that a much older Lando is hitting on a much younger woman, which is kind of... You. You, Lando. Really? The Rise of Skywalker hints at a lot of stuff that may be more interesting than what is actually in the movie. So why didn't they turn that stuff into movies instead? I'm not going to sit here and bash Disney or bash Kathleen Kennedy or any of that, you know, like a lot of other podcasters, a lot of 
amateur YouTube pundits take it upon themselves to do, because I really don't feel that way. I don't envy Kathleen Kennedy or J.J. Abrams their jobs. I don't envy Disney for taking on the Sisyphean task of trying to push the boulder uphill and please a fan base that seems to have decided sometime since 1999 or so that, you know, damn it, we just refuse to be pleased. Everything, everything that comes out under the Star Wars banner is going to make us unhappy. Even though Disney and Kathleen Kennedy were also behind The Mandalorian and Rogue One, which seemed to be almost universally loved. Some really good Star Wars material has come out on Disney's watch. But at the end of Rise of Skywalker, I'm relieved to see that most of the Star Wars on the drawing board is now being built for episodic television. And that, as The Mandalorian has already proven, some of the upcoming Star Wars material is really about building out and expanding the Star Wars universe. That is desperately needed. Not everyone who counts themselves as a Star Wars fan has read all of the Legends novels. They probably haven't read all of the comics. I haven't read all of the comics. They may not have absorbed the entire West End Games core rule books that renamed all of the species in the late 80s. For that audience, the world building needs to happen on screen, and I'm not sure that can happen until we finally push all of these Skywalker-related pieces off the board. Rise of Skywalker, at least, finally does that. I thought Solo did that, too, and in a really fun way, although many of those self-appointed media pundits would have you believe that I'm one of, like, 12 people who really dug Solo. I guarantee you there were more than that. There may have been as many as 37 people who really dug Solo, and I was one of them, and I don't apologize for it. It would be so much easier to enjoy Star Wars without all of the signal jamming that originates, frankly, from Star Wars fandom. I really have largely unplugged from most of Star Wars fandom. I've done this from Doctor Who fandom as well for the same reasons. I've got just enough time and energy to take in the shows or movies themselves without having to deal with a bunch of ancillary drama that does nothing to enhance the experience. I watched a movie that was filmed entirely in Russian. It's called Salyut 7. It's actually not a recent movie. I think it may have come out in 2017 or so. I just, I just watched it this past year. This is a really interesting movie based on the true story of a Soviet-era space mission to try to recover a space station that had begun tumbling in its orbit. It was one of the most dangerous space missions ever pulled off. And this movie, which was filmed in Russia, entirely in Russian, you know, obviously for a Russian audience, tries to tell a somewhat fictionalized version of that story. So once again, we have a movie aimed squarely at the Earl is a huge space history geek demographic, right? I mean, that's one of the most desirable marketing demographics there is, if you think about it. Or not. Although really, it's the slightly fictionalized part of things that really kind of made me start to twitch while I was watching Salyut 7. The real-life cosmonauts are replaced with entirely fictional characters who do many of the same things that their real-life counterparts did, but because they're fictional stand-ins, they get to have more outsized reactions to stuff that make things more dramatic. <clears throat> you know, I have my response to decades of criticism that the acting in 2001 A Space Odyssey you know, is really wooden acting, my response has always been that I interpreted those performances as hey, these astronauts are so well-trained, they've been drilled in every possible contingency and every possible emergency so often that they are unflappable and professional, 
So yes, I want to be in space with Dave Bowman and Frank Poole because they are not going to freak out even if they are facing the unknown. But not only is Salyut 7 not 2001, it's not even Apollo 13. Don't get me wrong, the visuals are amazing, especially in the part of the movie where they are trying to dock with the station, and that was plenty dramatic without the actors going through a lot of histrionics. While some of the technical details of what happened with Salyut 7 are portrayed somewhat faithfully, the characters' reactions to them are just kind of magnified for dramatic purposes, and toward the end, things get really, um, fanciful. So it is far from being a documentary. Maybe the Salyut 7 incident needs a good documentary. So the part of my brain that started twitching from watching For All Mankind also started twitching uncontrollably watching Salyut 7. It's a nice enough movie if you're not intimately acquainted with the subject matter, but it's a very, very fictionalized account of a real event, which is a bit of a problem when the promotion for the movie keeps hammering you over the head, telling you this is the real story. And in fact, um, <clears throat> not quite. So it could be that the less you know about the subject matter, the more you'll enjoy it. I don't know. Now, here is, um, we're going to get to the outliers in my movie viewing, because you're probably expecting this to be all about uh, stuff with spaceships in it. How to Build a Girl. Now, I'm not sure why, but thanks to repeat exposure to the trailer via a Facebook ad that kept popping up in my feed, I, I kind of got sucked into watching this, so I decided I'd actually, you know, check out the movie itself. I'm, I'm going to cop to the fact that this may have been for less than entirely wholesome reasons. The female lead in this movie is really cute and quirky and British, and while I'm not going to claim that I have just one type, um, that combination really ticks off a lot of the boxes. So it's kind of a combination of a coming-of-age story and a don't-be-a-jerk-just-to-run-with-a-crowd-of-jerks story. It's kind of effective in that regard, though the pacing is a little weird at times. Uh, there are points in the movie where everything just kind of comes to a dead stop. And, and worse off, by about three-quarters of the way through the movie, my cute, quirky British lead has really become this unlikable character, and I'm just kind of ready to switch it off and move on to the story of someone who's become less unpleasant, because I'm watching movies in the middle of pandemic lockdown to get away from people who are being unpleasant in real life, even if real life really at that point consisted of social media. The last thing I wanted to spend my time on was this unpleasant fictional person. Well, I say fictional, the movie is actually based on somebody's biography. So, yeah, kind of a cautious recommendation. I don't know, jury's still out. I may have to see if I can make it through that movie a second time. Really, the movie event of 2020 for me has been Hamilton. <laughs> I've been a Hamilton fan since the original cast album came out. But original cast albums are kind of, yeah, I don't want to say deceptive, but they are polished to a very high sheen. And for crying out loud, the original cast album of Hamilton was produced by the guys from a tribe called Quest. So there is stuff in there that is very produced. You know, there's like a little bit of auto-tune at the end of the Reynolds pamphlet on CD. It's like, okay, you couldn't do that on stage. But the original cast album is supposed to be a listening experience. The movie version of Hamilton that dropped on Disney Plus just blew my mind. Now, full disclosure, I was one of those theater kids in high school and college. I was in the drama club. So I love seeing how stuff is staged, how they make use of a limited number of additional players, 
how they make best use of limited space on the stage. And, and here's the thing, geographically and economically, I've spent the past five years being in the exact wrong place if I ever wanted to see a live performance of Hamilton on stage. And that's whether you're talking about the original cast or any of the touring companies that were crisscrossing the country doing shows before the pandemic shut everything down. For me and for a lot of other people on a very limited income, this was the only way we were ever going to get to see Hamilton. And I'm glad they filmed it at a time that you still had the original cast, and they had been doing it for quite a while, and they had it down to a science. And they were comfortable and confident with the material and the show, and it's everything is at its peak. It's peak Hamilton. I love the rotating stage and the recessed lighting built into the set. I love the choreography. You get a lot from the original cast album, but you don't get to see Lin-Manuel Miranda as Alexander Hamilton breaking into tears as it hits him that they have beaten the British at Yorktown, and the colonists are openly celebrating around him. Now, I do kind of wish that Disney Plus had offered the option of the slightly censored version that we got and an uncensored version. Because, come on, Hercules Mulligan totally earned his F-bomb. If anything, the filmed performance of Hamilton makes me even more in love with the show. It would still be neat to see it in person, if that ever comes within my reach, either geographically or financially. I am not throwing away my shot. And of course, I have rewatched The Martian several times in 2020, usually to pick myself up if it's all really getting to me and I'm, you know, bottoming out in the pit of depression, which has happened a few times. There's, there's been a lot of Martian watching this year. I may finally be at a point where I have to declare a tie for my favorite movie of all time. For many years, I counted the Peter Sellers movie Being There from 1979 as my favorite film ever. I may finally have to admit that it is tied with The Martian. I like how The Martian shows its work on the science part of its science fiction. I like how it really drives home the point that science and reason and steady determination are what keep Mark Watney alive through a series of events that would have most of us curling up into a fetal position under the nearest table. And it kind of goes back to the whole 2001 thing. Watney survives these events because he's trained well, he's been drilled in emergency situations, he knows what to do, and he keeps working to think his way through the situations he encounters instead of just freaking out and reacting. The Martian has helped me from slipping into too deep or dark a depression an embarrassing number of times this year. So to sum up my movie viewing for 2020, Science the shit out of this. Remember that you can make better decisions than your parents and grandparents did. Remember that you can make better decisions than you yourself did a few years or months or hours ago. And don't throw away your shot. Now that we've kind of danced around it a bit, let's just go ahead and talk about 2020. In some ways, this year was 2020-ing me and my family long before it started in on everyone else. Now, I think it's pretty well known at this point, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, that in the summer of 2018, my ex-wife and I pooled our resources 
and moved to Utah, where she had put in for a work transfer. The idea being that we were going to try to be a family, but a family in a new place, for the sake of the kids who really did not like the two separate households thing that had happened at the end of 2015. In the summer of 2019, things were looking up a bit. I was regularly doing the technical side of a weekly live stream for Roddenberry. I was drawing a check for it, so of course, that's when the universe decided to throw us a new challenge. My ex suffered an on-the-job accident that left her unable to work, and worse yet, there was some vague wording on the intake nurse's written report that left room for it to be interpreted that it was not an on-the-job accident, but rather something that happened at home. By the end of 2019, despite my best efforts to add another job and more income, we were having trouble making the rent. Just a few days after 2020 started, we were notified by our landlord. He wanted us out so he could sell the house instead of trying to manage it and rent it from across the country because he had moved to Georgia. What happened next fell into the cuckoo crazy pants column because this guy co-owned the house with his son-in-law and the son-in-law just kind of went rogue and had a bogus eviction notice sent to us. You know, 72-hour eviction notice in the middle of January. So suddenly we're getting two completely different answers as to what the hell was going on. We vacated the house on Valentine's Day 2020 because we had that eviction notice checked out by uh, a neighbor who deals with law enforcement and told us that uh, this was completely invalid. So, you know, we basically said we're leaving in February, and that was the end of the discussion. They didn't seem to want to uh, fight any further on that. We vacated the house on Valentine's Day 2020. So, uh, you know, you, boy, you talk about romance. Hey, we're all homeless together. At that point, we headed back toward Arkansas. Now, I had some backup plans in motion for a place to live that we could afford on my income alone, from which I could use that as a springboard to look for a day job locally. The first plan was a place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then that evaporated. Okay, plan B, Northwest Arkansas. And nope, that fell through too. At this point, we were already on the road and wound up not with plan C or plan M or plan double Z. This was more like plan triple W. She, the kids, and the dog would go to her parents' house, and I would try to find a place to rent, try to keep working, and try to keep the cats fed and happy. And maybe once I had a place rented, we could all move back in together, wherever that was. Except just as we arrived in Arkansas, hey, national emergency, pandemic, everyone stay put. Except I was in a hotel room I couldn't afford to stay in any longer. But... Oh, hey, another backup plan. Another friend has a place in Oklahoma where I can stay. Awesome. And then he just suddenly cuts off all contact with me. Okay. I'm out of money. I'm out of time. Uh, let's see if there are any places for rent on freaking Craigslist. Where I wound up was in the tiny, tiny town of Dyer, Arkansas, paying a mere $350 a month to rent a building that is big enough for the whole family in terms of space, but it is quite frankly falling apart around me. Only now I was stuck with a six-month lease. So my ex refused to move herself or the boys in with me, and, you know, I'm not going to uh, argue on that point. She, she had a point. But this means I haven't gotten to see much of my boys this year as a result. 
So that brings us to the beginning of March, and the only things I have going for me are I'm still working. My work is 100% remote, while a lot of other people were out of work, and I have cats. I have all my stuff in boxes. Because while I do really want to uh, set up my happy place again, I am not setting it up in a building that I'm not going to stay in one day longer than I have to. So let's just ride this out. Oh, oh, not so fast. The amount of stuff we were producing for work was suddenly cut in half. And that took me from I can afford my rent and my bills and I can have groceries delivered and I can transfer money to her for the kids to I can afford my rent and my bills and I can afford very little food but I have to prioritize cat food and litter before I feed myself and there is absolutely no wiggle room for anything unexpected. Terrific. I started firing off Hail Mary resumes to anywhere in the country that might relocate me for work because why not? What do I have to lose? So I started spending 8, 10, 12 hour days looking for work. There was one day in June I actually took notes on this. I kept track of everywhere that I applied for jobs. These were businesses in Albuquerque, Appleton, Wisconsin, Atlanta, Austin, Bentonville, Arkansas, Bolingbrook, Illinois, Cincinnati, Ohio, Cottonwood Heights, Des Moines, Fort Worth, Hastings, Irving, Kansas City, Kennesaw, Georgia, Lansing, Little Rock, Arkansas, Minneapolis, Muskegon, O'Fallon, Oklahoma City, Omaha, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Richardson, freaking Salt Lake City again, even though I, you know, the housing crunch was not going to have disappeared, even if I did land a job somewhere in Utah, Sandusky, Scottsdale, Springfield, Massachusetts, Wichita, now, frequently, I was applying to multiple places in several of those cities. No dice. Nothing. I mean, I did do a few interviews over Zoom and Skype, uh, during which, inevitably, a cat would jump up on my shoulder. But, um, no work. In June, I was contacted by my former employer from before I left Arkansas, and I was asked if I wanted to come back. Sure, if I could do it remotely, partly because I came back to Arkansas with my broken-down vehicle in tow, and partly because, you know, I don't want to get sick and die. A compromise was reached. Uh, we will get your vehicle fixed. You can come to work in it. We'll take part of your check to pay off the vehicle work until it's all paid off. I grudgingly agreed to this because it was probably the best deal I was going to get, except that on the first day I showed up, Oh, hey, we've uh, decided that instead of getting your vehicle fixed, we're going to rent a vehicle to you, and that's what's coming out of your check. Instead of, uh, you know, a portion of repairing your vehicle. Which means that I now have that much less money to put back to get that vehicle repaired. That's not what we agreed to at all, but that's where I am right now. But having that extra paycheck was my first opportunity to take Obi to the vet because uh, he was my oldest cat and he had lost a lot of weight again. He had done this around Thanksgiving of last year and we introduced him to the wonder of feeding him canned meat all the time and that kind of beefed him up. But by the time Obi made it to the vet, it was already too late. He had a couple of appointments before his final appointment, which was... Uh, where we finally agreed there was nothing more that could be done for him. He was not going to put weight back on. He was having trouble getting around. He was just lying on the floor, not looking very happy about doing nothing more than existing. 
So Obi died on July 28th, and for the first time since 2011, I'm down to only four cats. At the end of July, the schedule of production that I was doing remotely picked up again with Roddenberry, and for the moment, I'm socking back what I can from both jobs so I can move ASAP, get my vehicle fixed ASAP, and hopefully start getting to spend time with my kids again. Because where I am right now, for one thing, the lease is almost up on this shack. But this feels like utter defeat. I have to rent a vehicle to go anywhere. I am back to surrendering half of every paycheck to child support. Like the whole stretch of time from 2018 through the beginning of this year never happened. By the time all that's deducted, I take home less than half of my paycheck. But I don't even have the house I lived in back in 2018. I don't have the working vehicle I had in 2018. I am back to square one, but worse off. And all of this stuff, while some of it has been made worse by stuff like the COVID-19 outbreak, all of this has happened in a continuum of its own, so my 2020 has been really weird. I've been going through a whole different series of hells from everyone else in 2020 that have left me in no position to help those going through self-isolation or dealing with the psychological effects of the racial tension because I'm in a whole separate hell. I'm not saying that the hell I've been going through is worse because, you know, I'm always keenly aware that other people have it even worse than I do. It's not worse, but it's just different. You remember the season premiere of this year's season of Doctor Who, which can't possibly have already come and gone this year, and yet it actually started about six years ago on New Year's Day, at the beginning of 2020? <laughs> the Doctor's friends are all left on a soon-to-be-crashing jetliner while the Doctor gets yanked into a pocket universe. I feel stuck. I need to get out of this situation and help my friends and my family on the crashing plane. And yet, I can't do it immediately because uh, you know, I'm certainly not the doctor. Stuff like COVID-19 and the protests, it's like watching a film, something happening to everyone else, but not to me. I might as well have gone to the International Space Station. I might as well have stowed away on the Dragon Capsule with Bob and Doug and just gone to the ISS because I feel like I've been on another planet. But maybe I think we all feel that way, and that could be part of the problem. We're all on our own little islands as long as we have a lack of empathy for the plight of others. Only all of those islands are flooding. Maybe not all at the same time, maybe not all at the same rate or speed, but they are flooding. We should be building bridges and helping each other out. We should be showing our concern by checking on our friends, by wearing a mask, by staying home and not pretending that it's all okay and it was no big deal, not pretending that we have this thing kicked in the nuts already. Instead, a lot of people are just pointing at the people on the other islands and laughing or just flipping them off. That's been one of the most depressing things about this whole year. It's watching people who I know are smarter than that, people who I know are better and more compassionate than that, disappear down this rabbit hole of willful ignorance into this mindset of, you know, I've got mine, screw you. This year has brought some people's true colors to the surface, including people that I've known for years or decades, and it's depressing to see that emerge from the depths. It's disappointing. You thought you were keeping better company than that. Then a year like this comes along and proves you wrong. 
because it took me three days to record all of this podcast, because it's it's kind of a big one, there's a lot of catching up to do. On the uh, morning of the second day, I was called into the office to uh, let me know that uh, my job that I've picked up during the day will be coming to an end in a matter of weeks. So much for those plans that depended on having two sources of income. Just great. I haven't been able to partake of a whole lot of goodies or fun stuff this year, what with trying to keep a roof over my head and keep food in the cats and so on. Also, I haven't been getting my hands on a whole lot of stuff simply because, under the present circumstances, anything that does come in the door is just that much more stuff that I've got to move here in a few weeks. But there have been a couple of bright spots. Let's talk about floaty robot buddies also known as Diamond Select's action figures from the Black Hole. These were announced by Diamond Select Toys in late 2018, if I remember correctly. And then they slid from a spring 2019 rollout to late 2019, and then finally to early 2020. Only three characters were being produced in figure form. These are like the 8-inch scale figures. And they were just the robots, Vincent, Old Bob, and Maximilian. So I ordered the whole set of all three. I pre-ordered that in the summer of 2019, right around the time that the delivery date slid back to early 2020. And that became a problem. Right around the time that we had to vacate the house we rented in Utah in February, well, that's when Diamond Select started shipping. Um, I, I did get the little box set of the two um, little vinyl characters. There was a Vincent and a Maximilian in a box that I had ordered along with the figures because, you know, they're cute and can you really have too many floaty robot buddies? Unless the answer is no, you're wrong. So I emailed Diamond Select asking them to hold my shipment because I was having to move due to circumstances beyond my control and I didn't want my figures to just vanish. They said, okay, we'll hold them. Let us know your new address ASAP. So the move happened, and when I finally got settled in Dyer and sent them the new address, they said, Oh, uh, we shipped those already to the address in Utah, where um, I guess whoever lives there now is enjoying some black hole figures on the house. Now, Diamond Select did refund my money because the problem was, unfortunately for me, the figures were all sold out. They were gone. They were now on the secondary market at eBay prices. Sorry. Okay, then. There is an upside here. Diamond Select has been producing figures for general retail and not quite so collectible packaging as the, one, as the items that they sell directly over the Internet. So you'll find these um, 
these figures in you know more standardized packaging in places like Walgreens drug stores. But there's a catch. Only Vincent and Maximilian are going to wind up at retail. If you want old Bob, and really you should, because, I mean, Bob is Vincent's best floaty robot buddy, you had to get the collector's package from Diamond Select. So I found a Vincent and Bob set on eBay for just a little bit more than what I had originally paid to pre-order all three that I never got. I still don't have a Maximilian, but... You know, Vincent and Bob were definitely worth the hunt. These are the most detailed versions of these characters we've gotten, I'm going to say, since the model kit of Vincent that was produced in 1979. That may be the only more detailed version of either of these characters that has been produced. But still, how great is it that this cult film from 1979 still gets awesome new action figures in 2020? If there's a weak part of the package, it's the clear plastic stands that come with Vincent and Bob. You have to disassemble them and put them back together with fewer pieces. Because first off, Vincent and Bob don't float 19 feet off the floor. And if you don't remove some of the pieces of the stands, the figures just topple over face first because they are too heavy for what is holding them up. Now, on the Doctor Who action figure front, character options really surprised the Doctor Who collectors this year with a sudden glut of new box sets several of which had brand new characters that had never been done before. There was a unit box set, including the Brigadier, who we have gotten in various uniform and costume changes in the past, but this time he came with Captain Mike Yates and Sergeant Benton, and the first time either of those characters got their own action figures. I never thought we'd get action figures of those two. We're talking about characters who had been around nearly 50 years or more. I also didn't expect a box set of Companions of the Fourth Doctor, with both the Mary Tam and Lala Ward incarnations of Romana and Sarah Jane as seen in Genesis of the Daleks. I knew prototypes had been shown for the current Doctor's Companions, but we also have a box set now with Ryan Sinclair, Yasmin Khan, and a Jadoon, a bloody space rhino. Uh, Graham O'Brien is already available separately, along with the weird Dalek variant seen in New Year's Day 2019 episode, where... You know, the Dalek just basically built itself kind of a, a kludge-together Dalek casing out of the materials available on hand. Um, so, hooray for in-situ Dalek resource utilization. Let me tell you, I, I have not gotten any of these yet. These are going to have to wait until after I move. These things have sold out fast. And that's kind of depressing because it means by the time I get around to looking for them, I'm probably going to wind up paying eBay prices for them again. But here's why it's actually good news. If a box set of two Romanas and a 1970s Sarah Jane Smith sells out, that signals something to character options, and they can sit around and think to themselves, hey, you know what? That sold so well, those sold out already, we could get the rights for the likenesses of Ian, Barbara, and Susan, or Jamie and Zoe and Victoria, or... Tegan and Adric and Nyssa. I mean, how crazy would that be to get box sets of those characters? And one thing I did get just right around my birthday, because someone who still has yet to come forward, identify yourself, mystery gifter, um, somebody saw these on my Amazon wish list and had them sent to me. They're the Baby Yoda figurines from what is called the Star Wars Bounty Collection. Now, these are fairly unique in the Star Wars toy line, 
because each of them are about two inches tall and they're really meant to be more cute than what we saw on screen. So there's definitely a deliberate awe factor. You know, awe. They're not meant to be screen accurate. There are six of them in total, of which I now have four. There's one where he's doing the magic hand thing, one where he looks sad like he wants a hug, Aww. one where he's swallowing the frog whole in one gulp, and one where he is happily showing off the joystick ball top that he took off the controls of Mando's ship. There's no articulation. These are not action figures in any way, but they're just so cute. If you need a baby Yoda on your desk to brighten up your day, definitely pick up uh, one or more of these little guys. Now, on the music front, I've picked up only a few things since the beginning of 2020. There was the Star Trek Picard soundtrack, which is okay. I haven't written a formal review of it yet, and I think the main issue with it is the slow pace. We get the score for the entire season, which is neat, but I recommend listening to the whole thing just once before you build a custom playlist of your favorite bits and then just listen to that instead. I did really like all of the different ways that the Jerry Goldsmith theme from Star Trek The Motion Picture was used, but there are some long passages of the Picard soundtrack that are just meh, meh. Now I also got the full Season 1 soundtrack from For All Mankind, which is a much more interesting listen. It's um, a bit more musically focused, but get this, it's the same composer as Picard, it's Jeff Russo. There's a scene where a Saturn V rocket has to be repaired in orbit, and then there's a misfire and everything just goes to hell in a hand puppet. And so help me, Russo busts out the blaster beam for this. Yes! Someone used the blaster beam for something in the year 2020. We've also gotten a few new Doctor Who soundtracks this year. Now naturally there's the music from the most recent season with Jodie Whittaker, which is nice, especially the stuff from the two-part season opener where they're clearly trying to... Uh, do a James Bond soundtrack without actually doing James Bond music. My main interest in Doctor Who music this year was down to three releases, two of them that I got on CD and one that I got digital only. The classic series soundtracks for this year were The Sunmakers from 1977 and The Visitation from 1982. The Sunmakers just floored me when they announced it because it is a complete Dudley Simpson score from start to finish, which is something I never thought any of us would get to hear. Now, the late, great Dudley Simpson was the sound of Doctor Who for a lot of the first 17 years it was on the air. But just like the BBC is kind of terrible at hanging on to, oh, master videotapes of old black-and-white episodes, it also didn't hang on to the master audio tapes of the recording sessions for the scores. If the composer didn't keep a personal copy, or if a copy didn't turn up somewhere, the original music disappeared forever and could only be heard in the show itself with the dialogue and sound effects over it. So this is a rare treat that exists only because it was found in the archives of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop because Dudley Simpson would occasionally take an otherwise completed session tape to have synthesizers dubbed over it. It's just amazing to be able to hear a complete score from him. The visitation was from 1982, which was a point in time where the BBC Radiophonic Workshop was providing all the music and not just overdubbing synthesizers onto somebody else's. And finally, there was kind of a surprise release of some music from the Doctor Who Big Finish audio dramas that came out of all places on the La La Land Records label because the composer was an American composer who had already done some fairly major films. And we're talking about the guy who did Jack Reacher and he's done one of the Mission Impossible films. Now, this is not an obscure composer. It's Joe Kramer. 
but he had been a Doctor Who fan since childhood and just wanted to score something related to Doctor Who. So he finally got Big Finish's attention, and now he's got another album out of it. It contains two scores, both of them from audio stories set in the 70s with Unit and Joe Grant and so on. So it's kind of a nice companion piece to the Dudley Simpson CD, because Kramer is trying to match the Dudley Simpson style and sound with much more modern equipment and instruments. So a really good year for Doctor Who music so far. I'm glad it's been a good year for something other than body counts, really. I've also gotten a couple of new non-soundtrack albums this year, one by my friend Paul Melancon, whose 2002 album Camera Obscura is still one of my all-time favorite albums, and he gathered a new band around himself and turned out another killer album called The Get-Go's Action Hour. Now, The Get-Go's are basically Paul and his band. It's their alter egos. They're, they've been turned into Filmation-style early 70s cartoon characters. So it's kind of like, uh, the idea is it's the soundtrack to an early 70s Saturday morning show that never existed. Except that as you get further into the album, you find out that the lyrics are dealing with some of Paul's own mental health battles in recent years. And so amazingly, for an album that was written and largely recorded in 2019, it sounds like he is talking about 2020 and not stuff that happened in years past. It's a, you know, it's a universal thing. His neuroses are now everybody's neuroses. And so it's just a great album with killer catchy hooks and melodies. There's also an EP that I picked up, supposedly just the first, by a group called Licorice Quartet. Basically, this is a group made up of former members of Jellyfish. And so it harkens back to that sound. So again, we're kind of in the early 70s power pop inspired wheelhouse with those two releases. Most of the rest of my listening this year has been stuff I already had, you know, for obvious reasons, because I've already paid for that music. Uh, using the ridiculous amounts of time I had to listen to stuff and revisit things I've already heard, but haven't been listening to a whole lot lately. So we're talking about blasting P-Funk and dancing around with the cats, singing Tear the Roof Off the Sucker. And we're talking about late-night sing-alongs with Neil Finn at every opportunity, as one does. And I discovered that I suddenly loved Daft Punk's random access memories, even though I wasn't really that hot on it when it was first released. I dived more deeply into some music by Pogo, an EDM artist whose work my oldest son likes, and found that I liked it quite a bit too. It kind of filled a kind of a Reichsup shaped void in my heart to some extent. And then I discovered to my horror that Pogo was kind of an awful transphobic jerk. Great. I always find it so confusing when someone has beautiful artistic talents and then it turns out there's real ugliness beneath that. I have also spent a lot of time with the ELO and Alan Parsons albums that were released in 2019 because they are both good enough that they stand up to that kind of repeat listening. Book-wise, I've been reading a lot of biographies and autobiographies lately. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski's Becoming Superman, Christopher Eccleston's autobiography, Gene Roddenberry's biography, his posthumous biography. And, and let me tell you, you have to read them in that order. Read Joe Straczynski's book first and then Chris Eccleston's, because Straczynski's father was an utterly horrible human being, and to recover from that book, you need to go straight into Eccleston's. And his father was loving and supportive of his artistic ambitions, and that's such a relief after Straczynski's book. If there were any conventions this year, I would have been tempted to go find Joe and just give him a big hug. 
because you come out of his book feeling like he really needs one. All of the lockdown time gave me a ridiculous amount of time for gaming, too, and I need to confess how many hours I have sacrificed to a PC game called Surviving Mars. Surviving Mars was released in 2018 and was dropped as a free-to-keep download in the Epic Games Store in late 2019, um, thanks to Mark Holtz for pointing me toward that game. It is utterly engrossing. I'm a big fan of resource management games, especially if they are set in space, so this is right in my wheelhouse. You are trying to set up a Mars colony, first with robotic drones and rovers, and then you summon a crew from Earth. You have to build infrastructure and set up a dome with the necessary services, living spaces, and jobs. You have to constantly keep research projects in the pipeline to unlock the tech tree, and you have to make sure you don't run out of anything because people start dying if you run out of food or water or oxygen. But they also die if you run out of metals to repair the solar panels powering everything, or if you run out of polymers to feed the fusion reactors and Stirling generators. You have to mine metals, you have to extract polymers, which is a process that consumes fuel, water, and power. There are several official mods. Now, two of them in particular I have, the Space Race mod, which establishes rival colonies who may beat you to certain milestones or resources, if you care about that sort of thing. Now, that, that rivalry, that push to be first, that can really screw up your game because I prefer to be safest but that's just me. The other colonies may compete with you, or you can try to create alliances and trade partnerships with them. The even more challenging mod that I have is the terraforming mod, which allows you to actually begin modifying the Martian soil, seeding it, growing things in it that will affect the balance of atmospheric gases, and eventually allow you to open your domes and start growing crops in open-air farms instead of in farms contained within the domes. That's a really delicate balance of how much surface water and atmospheric water vapor there is, whether you can warm things up enough for the surface water to not freeze, and so on. Uh, because chances are, if your surface water is freezing, so are your people if you've already taken down your domes. It's a long road from when you first start modifying the soil to when you can open the domes and people can just walk around on Mars without a spacesuit. It's a challenging, engrossing game, and each session also has a randomly chosen mystery storyline. Sometimes an alien artifact is found, which begins behaving in ways that you're not entirely sure are friendly. Sometimes war breaks out on Earth, and heaven help you if your colony isn't already fully self-sufficient on all the material it needs if that happens. Sometimes a plague breaks out, and you have to try to keep it from spreading to Earth without simultaneously turning every one of your colony domes into a killer petri dish. Sometimes one of those rival colonies from the Space Race mod pack says, Hey, you know what? Earth is too far away to enforce anything or police anything if we suddenly decide to militarize up here on Mars, so prepare to be subjugated. It's a neat game, but since the lockdown, and then suddenly not having as much work to devote my time to, I had endless time to play it, and at this point I've gotten so good at surviving Mars that I have to max out the difficulty, randomize everything, because otherwise, honestly, I've gotten good enough at it that it's not much of a real challenge. I'm glad to have had it to keep my mind off of real-world concerns, you know, missing my kids and off of, well, everything else. You know, one time the Plague storyline popped up, and I was just like, um, you know what? Start new game. Not now game. Not now. 
I've successfully terraformed Mars several times this year. Hey, Elon, call me. I'm getting pretty good at this. By the way, did you hear that Christopher Eccleston is coming back to play the Doctor for Big Finish? I really did not expect that we would wind up in this dark timeline where Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi are the holdouts. Now, that being said, I I will say that the, the holdout thing is kind of a joke. Because, you know, reading the reading between the lines of the Big Finish press release about Eccleston returning as the Doctor, which which is amazing, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm standing at the intersection of wow, as a fan, I'm really excited for this, and you know, at the corner of that, and you know, as a real person, I worry that Christopher Eccleston had to take this job out of desperation because all of the other work has dried up which is not necessarily a thing to celebrate. So, yeah, thanks, 2020. I mean, you've you've got me at the point where I am looking at everything through your lens, and, you know, I can't even jump up and down and punch the air at something that seems like, on the surface, it should be really good news. Don't Give This Tape to Earl was written and hosted by Earl Green. For it is I. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. A huge sincere thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. This year, more than any other, you guys have literally been keeping groceries on the table for me. TheLogbook.com's podcast and video productions are entirely listener, viewer, and reader-supported. And there is much more than just don't give this tape to Earl, which hasn't really been much of a thing this year. And I apologize for that. I will try to be back sooner. There's Retrogram, where you pick a week between 1970 and 1990 to reassess all of that week's sci-fi, horror, superhero, and fantasy shows. There's Select Game, Expanded Memories of the Odyssey 2, which is another show that unfortunately has been on a hiatus for this entire blinkered year, uh, largely because this is not a place I want to set up a whole lot of AV gear if I can possibly help it. Select Game covers one of the great overlooked classic video game systems, the Odyssey 2, and or the Philips Video Pack, whichever name you know it by, depending on what continent you grew up on. There are the frequent Phosphor.Fossils YouTube videos, which I will be getting back to doing very soon, each one revisiting classic arcade computer and home video games from the 70s through the 90s. There's also the Logbook.com's Escape Pod, a daily Today in History podcast, just for those of us on the geekier side of the spectrum. And I happen to be re-recording, rewriting and re-recording every episode from scratch this year since mid-June. And hopefully everything sounds better and there's brand new material. Some of these shows are expanding to something like twice or three times their original length. The Escape Pod has been going since 2013. And don't ask me what I was thinking when I decided sometime in 2011, hey, you know what, I'm going to research and write and produce a 366 day a year because there are some leap years in there. Today in History podcast that will have to be updated forevermore. Great idea. Great idea. Um, Yeah. I hope you all enjoy it. 
There are the frequent Phosphor.Fossils YouTube videos, which I will be getting back to doing very soon, each one revisiting classic arcade computer and home video games from the 70s through the 90s. There are the logbooks, original books and ebooks, and much more. You can find ebooks and anything you might want from online vendors such as Amazon or eBay at thelogbook.com slash store. There are original designs on everything from t-shirts to socks to shower curtains to non-medical grade face masks at thelogbook.redbubble.com. You can support The Logbook on an ongoing basis at patreon.com slash thelogbook, just like Kevin and Darwin and Paul. Hey, welcome aboard, Paul from the Half Measures Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for signing up and supporting my work. You can also support us on a non-ongoing basis, and, you know, I, I understand what that's like, not knowing what your income is going to be from one month to the next. You can help out that way at Coffee. That's ko-fi.com slash the logbook. You can also help us out by subscribing to CBS All Access and Amazon Prime through the ads you will find on nearly any page of thelogbook.com. Thank you very much for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. This has been a production of thelogbook.com.